Hello, and welcome to the Crates of Colour podcast. My name is Simon Fados. I'm a TV comedy producer and director, and also the creator of Crates of Colour. Crates of Colour began last year out of sheer frustration with how little UK TV has progressed with using people of colour in front of and especially behind the camera. Very few of us are making the decisions which lead to content being made about us, but not for us, and certainly not by us. At the beginning of 2020, I finally organised a London meetup where creators of colour from all over the creative landscape were able to get together, air things off their chest and connect with people they wouldn't have necessarily been able to do so. With the coronavirus lockdown, I wasn't able to put on any more events, so I decided to do a series of online Zoom workshops. This podcast is the culmination of all those workshops. They've been edited down and audio tech issues resolved. Where possible, sorry. Sometimes I forgot to press record, my bad, sorry. So some, so some episodes like this one will start mid-sentence. There's a reason why I'm usually behind the recorder and not in front of it. The very first Creative Colour workshop happened on Tuesday 21st of April 2020 with the amazing radio presenter, writer and performer Yasmin Khan taking us through how to get writing. Enjoy. As part of that I did an awful lot of writing editorial writing and I, I always knew I wanted to do creative writing and at certain points I did evening classes and that sort of thing but it never felt like a real option it felt like a sideline more of a hobby even than a sideline or a side hustle um, but I'd wanted to do uh, acting and writing since I was a kid and radio presenting sort of came along to the latter end of my time in the city mm-hmm. um, and I got to a point where I'd done PR for over a decade. And I thought, if, if I don't leave now and try, I will never know. So that's how that was the kind of route in. And it was almost like starting again. Um, but I found that the experience I had in the city really helped because, A, I was writing anyway, albeit a different kind of writing. But I knew about deadlines and staring at a blank page and all that sort of thing. But it was starting again because yeah I was effectively starting a new career but I was just going in with more life experience which right. for me helped a lot yeah because um even with transferable skills people are still looking for what actual on the job experience you have as well which is yeah. just can be quite frustrating yeah um so because you have had um some writing background before how do you motivate yourself to write would um, you take a different approach for different projects yeah, and it's it's funny because uh, I've realised I'm I'm not much without a deadline. I I do need a deadline of some sort, and the difference comes between you know if I if I'm working for you know a theatre thing or EastEnders for example, which works to very tight deadlines obviously and constant ones. You have to do it because there's not just one person waiting for your script. There's an entire set of people. When my first play was produced, which was by Rifko, which is a theatre company based at Watford Palace and it produces British Asian work. Uh, and I remember the responsibility of, of the first read through and how many people there were in the room and how many departments there were in the room. And I suddenly yeah. thought, okay, I, I can't just, you know, sit around. I, I have to actually deliver this and deliver this to time. So there's one thing about, um, yes, having a deadline is how you motivate yourself. Mm-hmm. What is harder is when you get to a point when you are pitching and you're writing things for yourself essentially at that point but with the view that hopefully somebody will like this and you have to be you have to find a discipline and my advice would be it doesn't matter if your discipline is that you happen to be better at two in the morning that's all right you know creatives work at weird hours if it's two in the morning do it two in the morning but find don't fight against 
the way that suits you to work. Just make sure that you do do it. The, the motivation can come from the outside, but it can also come from just what it should come from wanting to tell that story. I wrote something the other day that is a pitch and I had it in my head for a few weeks. I was walking around London thinking about it. I was like, I really want to do this. But it wasn't until I sat down and thought, oh, the nerves of writing something. But suddenly it came into fruition in four hours. And right. it's because I really want to do it. So if you can't find the discipline and you're finding the motivation hard, then there's probably something about the idea that isn't working for you at that point. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, I find the same, actually. If I'm not interested in it, then I'll just keep putting it off. But yeah. if it's something that I really enjoy, like I can't wait yeah. to do it. So I'll just start, yes. I'll put everything else aside and I'll just focus on that. Um, so say you have an idea do you brainstorm it um, or do you just go straight into writing it or do you map it out? How do you approach that? I brainstorm it and sometimes that can feel really hard when you're brainstorming on your own, walk yourself into a hole. So I, I now have a, a sort of group of trusted people that don't really know each other, but they're all either trusted creative friends or, you know, friends um, mm. or Sometimes it helps, like my best friend, um, she does this wonderfully, uh, really annoying, but really useful thing. She, she's nothing to do with um, writing. She's a deputy head of a primary school, but she, she knows, you know, she's she known me for a long, long time. And she, she thinks she doesn't have a creative bone. It's not true because I will be stuck with something and I'll say to her, I'm working on this thing. It doesn't make any sense. And out of nowhere, she'll go, well, what about X? And it will be that that fixes it. And it's annoying, but so useful and brilliant. So I, I, I have people like that. And I also have people who, you know, who are mates who are writers and who I trust mm-hmm. and can say. And when I say trust, it's not about someone nicking your idea. It's about, right. because friends wouldn't do that anyway. And also there's no such thing as a new idea, frankly. Um, it's about someone who will not just say to you, oh my God, this is brilliant. But someone who will read it and go, you know what, that is your voice. Or no, this isn't you. Why are you, Mm. what gaze are you putting on this? Why are you doing this for them? Or why you whatever it might be. Or saying, no, 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 this is good. Trust your instinct. So that's what I mean by by trusted. Um, And it's amazing how much that can unlock whatever it is you're trying to do. Yeah, that's incredibly important to have have people around you that aren't just yes men. Yeah. Yeah. And I think... with your friend um, who's not in the industry, people like that is so helpful because they give you the perspective of the audience? Completely. Um, Because she'll think of an angle that I haven't thought of Mm. um, and it will be very natural. And don't try and second guess an audience and don't try and second guess. I mean, this is all very easy things to say about what's commercial and what's not. But it's good to know what's already out there and what people are watching and what people like. Yeah. Um, that's not to say you should write for that, but that it's it's a general awareness of of the outside world, whether it's theatre or television. And it gives you an idea of where to go from there as well to to elevate and to move on. Yeah, on from and to say okay, this this is the narrative that we've already had about whatever it might be. Yeah, what can I bring to it? Or you know what, there isn't anything like this, and it's okay for me to tell my very own personal story because, and you mm. would have all heard this phrase before: the personal becomes the global, and it becomes really relatable. Especially for people of color as well, I think a lot of people look for us for personal stories. Sometimes it's can be quite frustrating when you just want to write something like sci-fi, something that's not. Something you know, something unrelatable, but also since we can and since people are looking for it, we might as well start from there. 
I think there's two ways to look at that. And I have this conversation a lot is you, you are the best person to tell your story. I mean, I'm, yeah. I make documentaries and, and some of those are to do with the South Asian community because I've got that access and that understanding. Yeah. So I would rather I tell those stories than someone from without the, the community for whatever yeah. that means tell those stories and it's the same thing with with fictional writing that said I think it's harder for creatives of color to go into any sort of pitch or commissioning meeting and go do you know what I'd really just like to write about grief I'm saying that because there are several series about grieving at the moment and they're all brilliant and I, I love them there's, there's Ricky Gervais's there's Daisy Haggard's there's, yeah. there's quite a few um and they're all great but I think that we get the question more often is, well, why, why are you writing about this? You know, you can't just say, oh yeah, I want to write my um, sci-fi drama set in an 80s disco. Uh, well, yeah, what? which we would love for them to be like, yeah, great, go off and do that. Yeah, and we, we're, getting, we're getting there slowly. Things have changed an awful lot faster in the last two years than I'd say in the last 10 uh, or even 20, but it's, it's slow. The more we we all have a narrative strand, the more rich our narratives are overall and the more we can go, hey, I'm going to set uh, my sci-fi in an 80s disc. I now really want to write a sci-fi in an 80s disc, <laughs> but what, whatever it might be. Like you mentioned that you um, host a radio show as well. How do you find the time to balance with all the screenwriting that you do as well? It, it, uh, I should probably try and fabricate an answer that says that I do balance it, but it's um, it's hard because I, I I love all the stuff I do equally, and it, it can be difficult. But I just find that it's a different headspace for writing than it is for being in the studio and having a guest in front of you. Um, I've just recorded a podcast, for example, and, and I'm interviewing. I'm in interviewing mode. Um, whereas I sit down to write, I try and try and block out everything else. And it's hard because look, we're all online all the time. We've all got Netflix to watch. There's always something else to do. And just because I'm, you know, now supposedly a professional writer doesn't mean that I can't think of a million distractions. I can, we all do. That's natural. Again, allow yourself, cut yourself some slack Mm. because the minute you do, you'll find you actually want to do the thing you're supposed to be doing um, but it's different brain spaces there's a lot of crossover so I, I often end up writing about some of the things that I talk about on air but doing the actual work is quite you know I have to find a different headspace for writing um, and has it taken you a long time to, to kind of realize that and figure that out or did that come naturally to you no I think I think it comes naturally in the sense that you know I do I, when I walk into a radio studio I do feel really at home I've been doing it for a long time more years than I care to remember and I and I've learned you know lots of things along you're constantly learning and I yeah. and I love it I feel there's something safe for me weirdly about walking into a studio and and it's about connecting with people and your writing is about connecting with people and when I you know again often I, I do all kinds of radio but I've, I've done a lot where sometimes someone who is of the same background as me is telling their story for the first time, whether Mm -hmm. it's, you know, I've had uh, a woman tell me about her best friend who was honour killed in front of her eyes. I've had a a woman talk to me about being abused from within the family. Now, we know how difficult those kinds of things are for anyone to talk Mm -hmm. about, let alone anyone from a minority background. I use this phrase a lot, and it sounds, you know, overblown, but it's not. It's a real privilege to, to have someone's trust for them to tell you those stories. Yeah. So I, I do, you know, I go into a different headspace for, for that. But you treat, you know, you treat your writing and your 
characters with the with the, the equal respect that they deserve because this is you putting your soul on the paper a lot of the time. What advice would you give to somebody who comes in from like maybe not a formal writing background? Because I think a lot of that, a lot of um, the struggle people have to putting pen to paper is um, is almost judging yourself from not having the same sort of background as other writers. Yeah. Um, and again, without wishing to generalise, but whether you're from uh, an Asian background, uh, East Asian, whether you're black, whatever it may be, but we're underrepresented in uh, the formal writing groups, the formal drama things. And it's not it's not all to do with your upbringing and how much money your parents did and didn't have. That plays a big part in it. And that's for, for a lot of people now, because drama schools, for example, are so expensive. But for my mind, it's because we've come from communities where there isn't a natural route in. We don't mm. have people who are within the industry. We don't have daddy's friends that we can call, who can mm. call a favour. Again, the more of us there are in the industry, the more that changes. As long as we're helping the next person up, Exactly. We've got to leave the, the yeah. debate open behind us, the door open and, dra- and drag people in with us because otherwise it doesn't change. Mm. Um, but it can be intimidating when you think, oh, so-and-so has done, I don't know, the creative writing MA or mm. someone else has done whatever it might be. Again, it's easy to say, I don't think it matters. I think you should study writing however you find it useful to study. So for example, yes, I've, I've got lots of the books but I found it useful to do some evening classes, but I really found it useful to just start applying for writer development courses. And, you know, I cringe, we all do, when you read back your old stuff. Yeah. I really learned on things like, um, I did a writer development course with Carly Theatre, for example, then I got onto Mm -hmm. something at the Royal Court, I did something at the Soho, I applied for lots of things. Rejection's part of the game. I remember one of the first things I wrote, I entered for the Verity Bargate and I I got, I don't know if there's a long list, I think it was a long list, but basically I got a meeting with Soho Theatre out of it. Now the piece wasn't great, but what it did was allow me to get a meeting and allow me to get better. So, you know, you you just got to keep writing and keep practicing and be, be willing to interrogate your own work and think why it might not be working. Um, and just, again, it's easy to say, but just assume that you're going to be intimidated by people from different backgrounds who've done whatever formal writing route, but think, okay, yes, I am intimidated. I recognize it, but that's all right. It's not going to stop me from writing. Um, because what people do is stop at the block. And we'll talk about writing blocks a bit later, but whatever the block is, what, you know, the other people in the room, whatever it is, but they stop there. What they yeah. don't do is acknowledge it and go, yeah, I find that really scary. And what happens is when you, when you acknowledge that it's really scary, suddenly things open up or when you acknowledge that you're best in at three in the morning things open up because up until that point up until that point you're you're butting heads against that thing you know it's all right if I haven't done xyz course yeah and also I think um I think it's really important to um especially if, if that's your your hang up to not write on your own maybe because I've come across like I didn't realize it was a thing until uh, a few years ago that people get together to write not necessarily to to help each other's write just to like something as simple as being in the room full of other people writing can really push you to to write for yourself as well it's not like a competition based thing it's just it's just encouraging to stop you from getting distracted and they're there also to to bounce off ideas with as well if you need to absolutely um I have a couple of friends um I don't think my friend Rabia will mind and mind me name checking her um we will often message or phone each other and go oh, I can't do it I'm hopeless I should have just stuck with the other job and then we've started this thing 
that just on WhatsApp, even if we're at different ends of town or wherever we are, we'll go, should we do an hour? You do an hour, I'll do an hour. We're ready, set, go. And we will literally do that. And you'd be amazed knowing that someone else is doing it as well. And like you say, it's not a competition. It's just like, right, we're both going to just do this. And it's so helpful to know that someone else is in the same, the same boat, frankly. Um, but yeah, if you can do it, sometimes you can get together and do it. I find that helps if you're in the same room. But just, you know, message a mate, message another writer friend and go, if you do an hour, I'll do an hour. And then we'll call each other and I'm going to tell you that brilliant thing that happened last night. Or then we'll talk about um, the latest episode of whatever. But should we just do an hour? And it doesn't matter if you get two paragraphs out of it or, you know, an hour's worth of writing out of it. Just do it. Um, if it's any consolation, I'm about to name drop, so look out for the name drop. But I recently interviewed Richard Curtis, who many of you may know from his rom-com writing. And I, it was all about his writing process. Mm. And what was really heartening to hear, obviously, look, he's got a ton of experiences. A, he hates his own work as much as we all do when we was like, oh, it's <laughs> awful, it's disgusting. Yeah. He's a very self-effacing, kind, modest man, no matter what you think of rom-coms. I happen to love them. Um, but he will just write. And he said, look, I write 30 pages a day. And he said this exactly to me, almost exactly. He said, new writers make the mistake of going, I've written 30 pages and it's all rubbish. He goes, if I write 30 pages in a day, I'm so happy if three pages out of that are good. So that goes to, to show things yeah. don't get written until you write them, basically. Exactly. So find your way. Until you said it, I hadn't even thought about essentially what you've said is like a virtual writer's room of like just messaging a mate. Yeah, literally hadn't dawned on me until you said that. Really works. Me and Rabia, it's we've got it down to a T. <laughs> Allow ourselves like thirty seconds from the end of the WhatsApp message to like, right, I've got to start because Rabia started. It's like you're in a class together and you don't want to be the bad kid. You know? Yeah, amazing. I love that. I'm going to do that. So, how do you find tackling um, writing for, so say, for like a new project compared to um, a well-established show? Because imagine that are two different headspaces. Yeah, um, it can depend on what the newness is. So, for example, I'm just partway through co-writing something mm. that was uh, something that came to me and it was their idea. So when I went along to the meeting, I mean, I, I knew about it and we talked about it and you've got to check that you're on the same page, you know, that, okay, so this is a comedy thing. Are we talking the same language, the same tone? Um, and then when you get in the room with that particular thing, because it's a co-write, uh, again, you just want to make sure that everything you're writing, you're workshopping, what direction is it going in? Are you all happy with it? But yeah, when it's when it's new, and in some ways, uh, I'm smiling because it's it's like this is great. Someone else's idea. I'm going to co-write it. They're going to produce it. I don't, you know, great, happy days. They can worry about it. I just have to come up with the goods. Um, so it's kind of nice to do that when you're writing something completely on your own and it's new. It's terrifying. A blank page with no word on it or a flashing cursor just going, "Come on, then." Of course, that's scary because there's too many options to make. Um, and what you have to do, and this is where my previous experience comes into it. And I'd be like, "People are paying me money to write a press release and send to the national press. I, ha I have to do something." And nothing will get written until you start. And I would remember writing a press release, and the first paragraph was the hardest. And once you'd written it, you're like, "What was I worried about?" There it is. And you start to. I'm going to say the phrase that everyone will say: "Writing is rewriting." Yeah. But you don't be afraid of the blank page. It is terrifying because you think, well, I could set them in the 80s disco, but what about, you know, <laughs> the 90s indie disco that I'm also quite keen on? What if I put them, it doesn't matter, right? And then change your mind. Yeah. It's all right. You will make a lot of mistakes. 
Um, it's the vomit draft. Nobody has to see it. And as, again, Mr. Curses said, it's about picking the carrots out of the vomit draft at the end of the day and going, well, these bits are good. So <laughs> straight from the horse's mouth. <laughs> That's the most disgusting analogy. Yes, it is. And he writes about love. <laughs> so how have you found um writing for theater and tv is it two different i suppose it's two very different yeah um the, i mean my tv experience is is quite specific because it's eastenders mm-hmm. and you know i happen to to love the show and uh so i don't find it difficult in that sense because it's yeah. characters that i know but y- you've got to totally know those characters and know that they would mm-hmm. or wouldn't do or say a certain thing but yeah it's very different because you can go close up on text message and like ah see <laughs> then phil is stood behind them seeing that they've seen the text message but they don't know that they've seen the text message but you can't do that in theater obviously yeah. um so there's this smaller things like that um but of course what you can do in theater and which i'm reminded of every time i write a piece of theater you're like yeah well we're on a stage in the pleasance in north london but we're not we're actually at sea aren't we <laughs> and what the beauty of theater is that the audience will go along with you you yeah. create you tell them where you are and they'll go with you and you know simon you know this you don't need an awful lot of set to make it happen you know yeah and that's the beauty of it it's the imagination whereas obviously television is a lot more precise Uh, because you can be and there's a real bonus to that because there's sometimes on stage when you're like damn I really need them to see the text message and we can't do close up on text message so either we you know I did a show where we it was all about someone really famous and their stalker fan swapping places and it was about the dark side of fame Uh, and I wrote it with a pop singer and uh, so we both bought you know yeah it's like hey he was really kind he was like why don't you play the star I was like shut up you're clearly gonna play the star <laughs> and I'm gonna play your stalker back and that was a lot about what happened to the the super fans uh, you know media presence and twitter following yeah. as she slowly starts to take hold of his career and we needed to show that so we chose to do that on stage with a screen and with right. her twitter profile going like this while whilst he slowly physically shrank in her presence um and there are times when you there's nothing wrong i think in theater with 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 doing that because that, that is inherently theatrical yeah but what you don't want to do in a theater script is rely constantly on on a text message that nobody can see um nothing yeah and you don't you also don't want to do that in telly all the time because you know it can become a bit like tedious although i haven't watched run and everyone tells me that run is all about text messages and phone screens so oh, i've not seen that it's meant to, i i think we should from the premise alone basically two people who many years ago made themselves the promise that in 20 years time or whatever it was if life was kind of rubbish they would one or the other would text each other word run and whatever they were doing in their um, domestic lives they would just run away together Oh, that's amazing. Okay, I'm working that up. <laughs> um, oh, made by, is it Vicky, the flea bag producer? Vicky yeah. Jones, right. So, um, yeah, Vicky, Vicky Jones. Um, dry Right. Dry Right, yeah. Um, I think they came out through Soho Theatre. Yes. Yeah. Uh, are there any tips and tricks um, that you can share to motivate people to put pen to paper? So, yeah, have the, have the trusted friends. Um, mm-hmm. Write with people, even if they're not in the room. Um, and I know someone's put a question in about this and I'll answer it in more depth, but please don't be afraid to write. And I, and I know that's really easy to say, but, um, one of the things that helped me the most was, um, you know, I was taught it when I was on a Royal Court course, um, was automatic writing. 
So uh, some of you might be really familiar with it. Uh, some of you may have never done it, but I find it incredibly liberating. And please, for the love of God, don't edit yourself. Just start writing. Um, just write. It doesn't matter if it sounds... The minute you stop and go, oh, this is awful, you will, you're editing yourself. Just write. Right. You would be amazed what comes out. So if I was to now give you all a writing exercise and go... Um, I'm going to give you a phrase to start off, which is, I don't know which way to put the face mask on. Right. You know, or um, I preferred their second album to the first one. And everyone says the first one was the best. Right. Because that will give you a scenario. It will give you a person. It will give you a time. Right. And that for all these people on the screen will be different for every single one of you. And if you're stuck, no matter what you're writing, no matter what your thing is that you're working on at the moment, stop it. Do 5, 10, 15 minutes of automatic writing and it and it it unblocks you because you're like, hey, I really like the three quarters of this is bilge, but I really like that two lines that I've written or I really like that image that I've painted. And you will, you'll find something um, and just keep going with it. And if the phrase isn't working for you, use a different phrase, use a different keyword and, and let your brain do it because there's something bubbling. Um, and it doesn't matter if it's not something newsworthy or if it's something from your childhood or if it's something that your parents always say to you. Um, but you think, what does that phrase actually mean? Why did my dad always call people third class? That's really bad. Let's explore what third, whatever it is, you know, yeah. think about those phrases and just, just write. Amazing. Um, so some people, um, submit some questions ahead of time. Uh, Sarah Sahim asked, how do you avoid getting caught up in adhering to generic structural rubric and over editing? Um, so the automatic writing can really help. Right. And once you've unlocked that, if, you, if you're going to write a first draft of something or draft zero as, as a writer on Twitter calls it, and I think that's a really useful phrase, um, nobody has to see that draft. It's, it's for you. And actually, you'll find that many times once you've written it, you'll be like, hey, I'm quite good. I want someone to see this. Um, or you will go, all right, there's stuff in that that I liked and there's stuff that didn't work, but I've got something. There is a feeling of once you have got a draft, a page, whatever it is, once you've got it, there's a real feeling of completion and satisfaction. I think it was Debbie Tucker Green, I think, who said print it out and have it, own it, because then it's it's there. Um, the over-editing thing, I think, I don't know if it's that question or someone else's that came from, I've got lots of bits stuck on, you know, notes on my laptop. Yeah. That's great. Keep them because there'll always be a gag, you know, um, somewhere or a character somewhere, but use them use them and write something. And if you're stuck for what they're for, do the, use them as your automatic writing prompt. Right. And some of them, you know, you come across, I, I find things I've scribbled and I'm like, what does it mean the nun wanted a lollipop? Why was that so hilarious? I had no idea what that means yet. What was your brain? Do? You know, so some of them won't make any sense to you later down the line. But um, the yeah, the short answer is to not over edit is don't edit, basically. Do right. that later. Writing is rewriting. Um, and Emily Bounton asks, what is more important, quality or quantity? And how do you get better at critique critiquing your own work in a productive way? The quantity quality is really interesting. Uh, if you're at that first couple of draft stage, I would say just, just write. Don't worry about um, quality at that point. The quality will come. Most things that you see are on the what ninth or 19th draft once they come to stage or screen so don't worry about those future drafts just focus on this one get it out as you go when you think i'm writing this line and if your brain just goes oh there's a better way of saying it do that there and then but don't keep stopping to do that just do it as it occurs but get get the draft out self-critiquing you will find comes 
quite, and it sounds easy to say, it comes quite naturally with, with practice. I used to be really, I'm, I'm, I'll be honest, I am quite easily pleased with stuff that I watch, but I feel I've become more critical of other stuff because there's so much choice. So when I switch on, a, if I put a film on now, and I'm a massive lover of, of British movies, I like, I mean, I like all movies, but I love seeing, it's no wonder I like Curtis films, right? Because I like seeing London on screen and I'm like, yeah, it doesn't look that clean, but it does, it's beautiful. Um, and, you know, if I watch a British movie now, isn't one of the big houses. I found, I'm, what really breaks my heart is, is within six, seven minutes, there's so many of them that I'm like, I have no care for your character. So why am I going to give an hour and a half of my life to this? And the more you watch, the more you will understand about story and caring about those characters. Look, plot is everything. Yes, I get that. But if it's plot stuck on top of really thin characters that we don't give a monkeys about, you're not going to care. And the more you watch, the more you'll be able to critique your own work and the more you read, yes, read the screenwriting books and everything, but just read for yourself as well. Read other people's work, watch other people's work and think why you do or don't like it. And that way you can critique your own work a bit better. And don't be afraid of those trusted outside eyes, but go with your gut as well, which means don't give it to 15 people, give it to three or four that you trust. I gave a pitch recently last week to two very trusted friends, one who is a white, middle-aged, middle-class man that works in the media, and one who is a young South Asian woman who works in the media because I wanted, although they're both media types, they come from very different backgrounds, mm -hmm. and I wanted equally a value of both their opinions. So find it, find your trusted tribe. And uh, Junior Chang asks, how do you turn an idea into a viable narrative? Yeah, I think the viable narrative is basically that, that very fundamental question of what happens in your story. So if you've got characters that you, it's the flip of Emily's question in a way, is that if you've got characters that you love, what journey are they, and I'm sorry I'm using all these phrases that we, you know, journey and how do they change, but ultimately that is what it's about, is where do they go, um, literally, figuratively, how do they change as people? Um, and every single thing that you can think of, whether it's a children's story uh, whether it's uh, um, a Norwegian crime drama, whatever it is, they're all going on some sort of quest journey that, you know, people always quote um, The Wizard of Oz and Dorothy had to go away to find out that there was no place like home and along the way she faced challenges and challenges. We love all those, those characters, Dorothy and the Scarecrow and all of them, but it's what happens to them. Um, I was re-watching um, Ashes to Ashes recently, which I love, Life on Mars and Ashes to Ashes. And, and I love them anyway. But I was watching the first couple of weeks of lockdown and I found, I, me personally, I really needed to watch comforting things that I knew and I knew mm -hmm. them, so I watched them, but it'd been a good few years. And it was when I got to Ashes to Ashes and I was like, oh, wait, she's going, she wants to get home. The whole way through, she's woken up in 1982 and she wants to get home, she wants to get home, she wants to get home. And then she realizes that she's already home. And I was like, there's, there's so many parallels to the way she, and she's got yeah. these cast of characters. She's kind of Dorothy. She's kind of looking for, so take, you know, finding the narrative is where are these characters going to go? I don't, I don't mean necessarily down the M1 and, you know, they want to get to the rave or whatever it is. Although that's also something that I'm writing. And it's, you know, if they want to get to the rave, they want to get to the rave. But maybe what they learn when they get to the rave is the rave was rubbish and they were always going to be better in their memory in the rave rather than when they get there find the story with those characters. God, we've had a lot of raves and discos and the apes. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Clearly where my head's at at the moment. Thank you for listening to the Creators of Colour podcast. 
You can find me, Saima, on Twitter and Instagram at Saima Ferdos and Yasmin Khan on Twitter at Yasmin Khan One. Please support the podcast by tweeting Instagram about it and subscribing to it, which is available on all podcast platforms. Thank you. See you next time. Bye.